Welcome nerds, now bracing for an entertainment incursion. Rolling Rockabilly Track Gearing you up with the latest in horror, video games, movies, and TV. Now preparing questionable meat, nerds, this will be your finest hour. Welcome to the Amazing Nerd Show. Hey, this is Christian. Hey, this is Damon. And this is the Amazing Nerd Show. All right, in this week's podcast, we're reviewing the latest episode of The Last of Us and breaking down the latest episode of The Mandalorian. Plus, we're talking the fallout from AW Revolution. And if today's episode isn't enough for you, don't forget you can get even more Amazing Nerd Show content on Patreon by subscribing to our $5 tier. Doing so, you'll gain access to our Best and Worst of the Week show. Though, if you'd like even more than that, additional bonus podcasts will be available for our $10 tier that includes all of the other tiers benefits as well. That's right, Christian. Currently, we've got third tier exclusives like The Nerdies, where we discuss the top performances in TV and film of 2022. And also this month, we started a brand new segment called Better Late Than Never Reviews, where we review the films and TV shows that we didn't get a chance to discuss when they were first released. Plus, this week, I'm releasing my first ever episode for the monthly anime show we're going to be doing for tier three as well. You can find our Patreon link in our show notes or simply type in patreon.com slash amazing nerd show all right before we move on make sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform if you like what you hear leave a five-star review and if you dm us a screenshot we will not only read it on the show but we'll send you some amazing nerd show swag also don't forget to follow us at amazing nerd show we're on twitter instagram and facebook let's get into the news every week we collect the biggest headlines and rumors in nerdum we're not mild-mannered reporters we're mere podcasters with opinions Warning, potential spoilers for upcoming shows and movies ahead. Check timestamps to avoid spoilers. You have been warned. All right, up first in the biggest story of the week, it looks like John Bernthal's Punisher is returning in Daredevil Born Again. The Hollywood Reporter this week broke news on the Daredevil Born Again series and who from the Netflix series will be joining Charlie Cox and Vincent D'Onofrio in reprising their roles. In their reports, they mentioned that John Bernthal will be returning as the MCU's Punisher. However, THR has claimed that Deborah Ann Wool, who played Karen Page, and Eldon Henson, who played Fog, are not slated for returns. And there's no official word on if any others a part of the you know Netflix Defenders are returning to the MCU. But Kristen Ritter, who's been heavily rumored to return as Jessica Jones, did put a little bit of a fire emoji under John Bernthal's reveal post on Instagram. Yeah, I'm definitely holding out hope that you know we also get the return of Jessica Jones uh, and Luke Cage for that matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, fingers crossed. But uh, I think this is huge news. I was a big fan of, you know, Bernthal as the Punisher. Um, I thought his introduction in, you know, season two of Daredevil was, you know, fantastic. Um, even though I didn't love at times where they were taking the character, especially the whole like, you know, Karen storyline. Um, I just thought like Bernthal just really like nailed, you know, the spirit of the character, if you will. Um, so, I mean, this is fantastic news. Hopefully they allow him to be as dark of a character as he needs to be uh, yes. in the MCU. Uh, that's my only worry. But, you know, from what we've seen and heard, you know, especially with the news that, you know, we know, like, you know, they're willing to have, you know, R rated Deadpool and um, even like Disney Plus carrying the Netflix shows now. Um, I don't know. It, it, it makes me feel a little better that, you know, Foggy's willing to stretch his boundaries when it comes to the ratings and, you know, the content. 
that you know the mcu releases i mean burnthal had to have had the second most iconic you know hallway fight scene in all of <laughs> the netflix shows with that prison escape so. oh my god such a badass scene. yes um <laughs> yeah I, i'm curious to see like how he plays a role in the series uh we know there's plenty of episodes <laughs> mm -hmm. to tell his story and to reintroduce you know the character um but yeah, yeah, I, I'm not sure, like, in the comics with the Born Again storyline, it's basically Daredevil rebuilding himself from the ashes after he, you know, loses everything almost and not to, you know, spoil anything. So I'm wondering if the Punisher will act as almost a reflection of where Matt could possibly go, you know, as a vigilante. Um, mm. you know, if he gets, you know, lost to the darkness, if you will. The Punisher in the comics always serves as a great kind of vessel to tell those kind of stories. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if they don't go down that route. Now with Deborah Ann Wool and uh, Henson not returning to the roles of Foggy and Karen, could that mean that they're recasting those characters or they're just not part of the series? Because Karen is a huge part of the Born Again storyline in the books. Um, so it would be surprising that the character wouldn't be included whatsoever in the series. We have a bunch of actors who have been added to this that you know don't have a role but have been rumored to be love interests. So no. I don't know if you know any of them could be Karen Page. Maybe. I mean, I feel bad for Deborah Ann Wool because like... Mm -hmm. I wasn't always a huge fan of what they did with the character, you know, on the Netflix shows, but I thought she was great as an actress. So, I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I get wanting a clean break, but it's just so unfortunate because this is definitely like the meatiest story arc, you know, for Karen. So mm -hmm. if they do go that route with the story. I mean, I'm sure Deborah would have nailed it. Well, up next, we've got a rumor that a huge Marvel villain might be returning to the MCU. This rumor comes from Marvel Studios Spoilers Reddit page, which has actually had some good sources before. But, you know, just take this with a grain of salt. Anyway, this time they claim James Spader could be making his way back to the role of Ultron for an appearance in Armor Wars. We know that the series is set to take place directly after Secret Invasion that comes out this year, which the same post actually claims that Secret Invasion could be coming out um, early summer, either May or June. But there is no official release for either series just yet. So this definitely like levels up my interest in this series if you know the rumor's true because i'm a big fan of ultron in the comics and i don't think he really got his just due in you know avengers age of ultron um i don't know like it was a okay introduction i just felt like they defeated him way too easily um even though they had to like lift up an island or something right <laughs> it was so weird and convoluted i was like what the fuck what huh um <laughs> But it is what it is. I know a lot of people see like the Infinity Saga with rose colored mm. like glasses nowadays, but there were some questionable choices that they made, you know, with those first 20 movies, uh, you know, in Age of Ultron's definitely one of them. I mean, in a weird way, Arnim Zola uh, lived longer and been more of a online presence than, you know, <laughs> yeah. Ultron was. No, I mean, you're not wrong. Um, but I mean, it, you know, when it comes to Armor Wars, 
I just kind of assumed that it was, you know, Rhodey trying to protect, you know, whoever from getting their hands on StarTech. But how cool of a wrinkle would it be if it's actually like Rhodey racing to stop Ultron from coming back online when someone like steals something they shouldn't from Stark Industries? I mean, it's very plausible. Uh, I mean, there's been rumors that there's like little pieces of Ultron still existing somewhere oh, in yeah. either Stark or somewhere else. Yes, so. I mean, that... It, the character just leads itself to to that. I mean, uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know what version of Ultron we're on, but he always gives himself like a sequel number. So, uh-huh. you know, in the comics. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. It would be such a waste if they didn't revisit him. And, and you so- know, my dream is to see, you know, evil Ant-Man someday as half Ultron. So, oh, yeah. With Pym. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. I don't know if they'll do that with Scott. Um, no, it just would make see. no sense. But <laughs> I can still see Hank being evil. <laughs> yeah, I mean that that what, I think that's an underrated like plot line in the comics. Mm. I know a lot of people shit on it at the time, but it just made so much sense for, you know, Pim's character who's just so flawed in the books to the point that it was pretty obvious why they chose to go with Scott Lang in the MCU instead of, you know, you know, Pim in the films mm-hmm. well anyway moving on it looks like we've got more rumors of delays coming to the mcu industry scooper casey walsh on twitter posted an updated release calendar for several mcu projects most notably they claim that the what if series has been delayed into early 2024 which it was originally slated for around spring of this year along with that casey walsh claimed that ironheart will be out november 23rd this year and echo will also be out early 2024 I was really looking forward to season two of the show. And and with the recent leaks we just got from Funko about like new characters, uh, you know, coming to this season, I thought we were close to an announcement about like a premiere date, but if they need more time, they need more time. So it is what it is in the long Mm. run, because I definitely don't want them to rush the animation, um, especially with the high bar they had in the first season yeah i mean i've seen that be the downfall of so many shows where they just rushed out that second season of course it's half the quality so well moving on to the star wars universe it looks like we have some more unfortunate news coming from variety this week we got updates on kevin feige patty jenkins and taika watiti's star wars projects which for kevin feige and patty jenkins it seems that they are no longer having films in active development for star wars which at the end of the day maybe they were just announced way too early in general but as far as patty jenkins goes I mean, that has to suck. I mean, they were originally putting, you know, Rogue Squadron on the back burner just so that she could figure out stuff with Wonder Woman 3. And now both films seem to be canceled. But on the other hand, we have Thor Love and Thunder's director Taika Waititi, whose film is still in development. And like with a lot of Taika's work, he's interested in starring in the film as, you know, a supporting character as well, Uh, which he kind of already is in a Star Wars project as IG-11 in The Mandalorian. Yeah, who's most likely going to be making a comeback this season so some point yeah um uh i don't know man like it's time for like kathleen kennedy and crew to get their ducks in the row um when it comes to the cancellations i can't say that you know i'm surprised at all um you know we've heard rumors there was a strong possibility that these films weren't going to happen for months now i just hope that like kathleen kennedy and crew have learned their lesson and not to like announce things way too early 
Um, I don't know if the Foggy Project was officially announced, but Jesus Christ, they like did like a mini trailer for Rogue Squadron yeah. <laughs> with like Jenkins like introducing like the project and why she's so invested in it. You know, there's some story about her dad, right, being a fighter pilot. Um, yeah. It just really feels like they need to go back to the drawing board and really like hammer out a solid, cohesive vision of where the franchise is headed. Um, because right now it just feels like such a mess. <laughs> you know, it, bes- besides the Disney Plus shows, that is. Um, uh-huh. They just don't seem like 100% sure like how to proceed like cinematically for some reason. Um, I don't know. I-, I don't get it. Yeah, I mean, it's just so night and day with Marvel on the other end of the same you know, company uh just able to sit together plan out films yeah i mean not announce anything too early it's all weird <laughs> it just feels like all the backlash they received from solo and like you know the sequel trilogy it just like shook them to their core and they don't know how to proceed now and almost like they kind of just lucked into like all the success of like favreau's shows um you know, to me, it just, it seems like they need, like, a Kevin Foggy. Um, you know, and it, it sounds like they almost had him, and <laughs> they wasted it. So, um, I don't know. I don't know. I know he was just producing the Star Wars film, you know, his Star Wars film, but I was secretly holding out hope that he would eventually, like, you know, like, hey, let me sit down in one of these meetings and, you know, help you guys out a little. Let me show you how it's done on the MCU side of things. <laughs> Yo, not that, you know, he's been hitting out of the park lately, but he knows how to, like, tell a story, like, you know, beginning, middle, and end. Mm. He at least has experience, like, telling a cohesive story when it comes to, like, these, you know, giant universes. Um, so why not pick his brain? Well, speaking of getting a giant franchise back on track, we got ourselves a pretty big revelation when it comes to the first chapter of the DCU. Gun on Twitter responding to folks, as always, uh, reiterated that they have announced less than half of the chapter one slate for the DCU, which, you know, sounds like there are a lot planned as 11 projects have already been announced. And as other sites have pointed out, that means that the DCU chapter one will be more than double the usual MCU phase and content, which might be a little daunting when you look at it that way. But you also have to remember these chapters include animated series, you know, you know, regular series and video games. Um, so it, they're just naturally going to be bigger, I feel like. It just sounds like a lot, you know? No, I mean, I agree. <laughs> I Like, I'm not going to be playing the video games, so I'm going to have to get, like, spoilers, you know, from you. So I hope that doesn't, like, put me behind the eight ball when it comes to, like, the ongoing story. Um, <laughs> but it also doesn't mean there's like another 10 films planned Mm. for this chapter. And I do believe like when they originally announced chapter one, they did state this wasn't the chapter in its like entirety. But at the same time, I didn't think it was less than half of the fucking chapter. (laughs) Because it does feel like Gunn has been hinting that Wonder Woman will be somehow playing a role um, in this upcoming first slate. So... We'll see if she doesn't eventually get some kind of announcement of like a project. Well, yeah, you can't do, you know, Batman and a Superman film and not do a Wonder no, Woman film. No, I mean, you, you, need, know, you need the, the Trinity. So um, uh-huh. it only makes sense. Well, continuing on with DC, uh, we got some casting news for the upcoming Penguin series. 
Variety reports that Clancy Brown will be playing Gotham City crime boss Salvatore Moroni in the Penguin series. Brown has starred in several hit films and series, everything from you know, SpongeBob to Shawshank Redemption. The man's got some range and will most likely make a good adversary to the Penguin as the criminal underworld you know faces this massive power vacuum after the events of Matt Reeves' first Batman film. Yes, yeah, so and we do know that the Penguin series is currently shooting because, of course, we've had tons of like behind-the-scenes like footage leaking. Uh, recently, along with some uh, interesting Joker 2 stuff. I don't know if you've caught that, Christian, online. Yes, all the little videos of uh, Joaquin running yes, with two yes. Jokers behind him. <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny because I, I believe that's the kind of footage that leaked with the first Joker film, right? Wasn't yes. it like the Joker running through the streets? I mean, I'm assuming they're shooting in New York and that's why it's hard to like, you know, keep this footage from coming out. Uh, but I don't know. I'll take it. It's a little it's a little teaser, you know, before the film. Well, since we're talking all things Batman, it looks like we have an update on the Batman animated series. The Hollywood Reporter brings good news as Amazon Prime picks up the canceled Batman the Caped Crusader animated series that was being produced by J.J. Abrams, Matt Reeves and Bruce Timm with Ed Brubaker on to write. Amazon Prime has allegedly ordered two seasons of the series with each season being 10 episodes, which to remind you will be all kind of in that same style as the 90s series. Yeah, I mean, we heard when the series was originally canceled that Warner Brothers would continue to shop it around to other streaming services. So I'm not surprised that, you know, someone didn't pick it up. Um, it's it's kind of bittersweet, though, since we just recently lost Kevin Conroy and, you know, we mm -hmm. know that he was supposed to be part of it. Um but I'm glad that, you know, the project's going to live on. And honestly, it's like one of the top things I'm looking forward to, like coming from DC in the next like couple of years. But God knows, like whoever they choose to like take over the voice of Batman has some giant shoes to fill, to say the least. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's been reports that Hamill says he doesn't want to, you know, do the voice again. But you yeah, I know. mean, I get it, but I'm still hoping that he has a change of heart. All right, well, up next, we have some Harry Potter news. With the recent commercial success of Hogwarts Legacy, there has been a lot of talk about the future of the Harry Potter franchise and as a whole. Warner Brothers Discovery CFO Gunnar Weidenfels uh, mentioned in a talk with Variety that they're only just starting to expand on the opportunity they have with the Harry Potter brand, which has led to a lot of speculation on a potential reboot of the franchise. While there will definitely be more Harry Potter in the future, I'd personally be against doing a reboot. I believe this is a franchise that could survive in a similar fashion as the MCU or Star Wars has over at Disney, as there's just so much of this universe that has yet to be explored. Hell, they only just began to show the American side of witchcraft and wizardry in the Fantastic Beasts franchise. And along with that, they have, you know, several other schools. I mean, like two to three other schools outside of Hogwarts and the American school that could tell extremely culturally different magic stories. There's so much untapped potential that I feel it would be a big mistake to simply start from scratch, especially since that will most likely face much more backlash focusing in on those earlier works. When I you know, look at the statement made by the CFO, I feel they see you know, the opportunity to expand on the universe, but you never know, it might just be an easier cash grab to just start over. Well, moving on to the wonderful world of horror, uh, we've got some casting news from the upcoming Robert Eggers Nosferatu remake. 
Aaron Taylor Johnson is set for a role in Robert Eggers Nosferatu according to Deadline. Um, Taylor Johnson, who was recently in Bullet Train and known for his role as Quicksilver in the MCU and Kick-Ass, is currently working with Sony on the Kraven the Hunter spinoff. But now he seems to be joining Willem Dafoe, Nicholas Holt, Emma Corrin, Lily Rose Depp, and Bill Skarsgård, who is set to play Nosferatu in this film. Uh, the movie is slated for sometime in 2024. Aaron Taylor Johnson's star must be on the rise because I feel like this is the fourth like rumor he's been attached to recently when it comes to yeah. like, casting. Um, good for him. Uh, speaking of stars on the rise, uh, as we speak, we just had a story come out that Jenna Ortega uh, might be part of the Beetlejuice sequel. Um, she's rumored to be playing Lydia's daughter. Uh, that just sounds like the perfect fit to me. Uh, <laughs> she's obviously worked with Tim Burton in the past with the, you know, the mm. Wednesday show. And since we know that Burton has a pension for reusing actors that he likes to work with, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised to see them pair up on more projects in the future. I mean, it just seems like a perfect fit for both, but you know, you never know if she doesn't want to get uh, typecasted anymore. <laughs> no, I mean, that's true. She's been doing a lot of horror, but I'm not going to complain. So, <laughs> uh -huh. I mean, that is true. She's been doing a lot of like horror related stuff um, recently, but she's young. I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis was able to kind of shake that mold. So um, it, she's talented enough where I feel like, you know, that won't be an issue. But I'm also all for her, like strongly flying the flag for horror. And now for the nerds breakdown of The Mandalorian Season 3, Episode 2. Spoilers ahead. I knew quite a few Jedi, you know. I don't know what they taught you about us, but there was a time we actually got along quite well. Fought, side by side. How good are you with the Force? You must be quite good at it if you got back to me all alone. This week on The Mandalorian, we start with what seems like a speeder race on Tatooine. And when a racing Rodian chooses Polly Mato's shop to get his speeder fixed after the race, she proceeds to scam him, having Jawas take parts from his ship so it seems more damaged than it actually was to upcharge the racer. Yes, I guess it's Boonta Eve. Uh... <laughs> Whatever that is. Sure. Like we speculated last week, this is, of course, where Mando flies in when he needs, you know, special parts like a memory circuit for IG-11. Unfortunately, Mato and the Jawas have no such parts. But what Mato does have is a special R5 astromech. You may recognize this droid from A New Hope, as R5-D4 was nearly sold to Uncle Owen in some of our first moments with Luke. The terrified droid does its best to not get picked to go on a deadly mission with Din Djarin, but to its dismay, Polly is able to sway Din Djarin into bringing R5 with to Mandalore. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's Disney Star Wars, but I know at some point there was all these like retcon stories where R5 is like a hero of uh, the the rebellion and like has gone on like some uh -huh. crazy missions and shit. So uh, apparently R5 has had a lot of adventures that we just don't know about. So does this mean that Mando's no longer looking to get like ig11 like back online i guess because he just needed him to go into the like into the caves for him and go spelunking but i don't know now that he's already been in the waters does he still need ig11 yeah i mean that's strange that that would just be a story thread that they just drop you know <laughs> once again making you know mando seem like kind of a jerk but <laughs> <laughs> the only reason he's willing to bring IG-11 back online is, you know, to get something he needs. 
Um, but yeah, it is what it is, I guess. Um, I'm glad that we didn't spend too much time with uh, Polymato. This was short and sweet in the exact way I want them to use this character. I mean, less is more. It, you know, for me at least. You know she's coming back. I you know, know but as long another... as it's for like, you know, short scenes like this, I'm okay with it. You know, it's, right, it's, right. just use her as a glorified plot device. That's that's totally cool. <laughs> like, I don't need to see Polymato in like a battle, you know, scenario. Like we got with like uh, Book of Boba Fett. We then get our first look at Mandalore as Mando and Grogu fly by the planets. Here he actually points out the moon he grew up on called Concordia to Grogu, after explaining that he's actually never been to Mandalore himself. He also tells Grogu the importance of navigation, something that later seems to help Grogu in the end. I could see some people feeling like this was a little contrived or like, you know, exposition-y, um, but I don't know. I, it makes sense for, for him to be trying to, like, teach Grogu the ways of the Mandalorian and giving him, like, a history lesson. So, yeah. I, I don't know. It just so happens that it actually, like, came into play later on in the story. Trust me, I could be like, why didn't he point out his, you know, home moon when he went to go visit uh Bo-Katan the first time. You know, they, they've already technically been in the system, but I don't give a shit. It's yeah, fine. <laughs> exactly. And as a parent, I mean, you're not like, okay, well, today's lesson is you don't have a fucking curriculum set, so it, it's okay. Uh -huh. <laughs> it was just a teachable moment. Flying on in, our pair and their astromech land on a crystallized surface of the now ruined Mandalore. Din Djarin sends out the terrified R5 to test the atmosphere and see if it's safe to breathe in the lower ruins of the planet. However, once R5 goes in further, his signal goes missing, forcing Mando to go find him. What he does find, though, are Alamites that ambush him before he can go any further in. Mando, in a struggle, is forced to use the Darksaber, which he still seems to be having a bit of a hard time wielding. Nonetheless, he still dispatches his attackers and saves R5. These aliens totally felt like, you know, like mole people or, you know, the kind of creatures that you would uh -huh. see from like, you know, like a uh, journey to the center of the earth like you know film or something like that um totally like disposable but kind of a fun like throwback i mean at first i thought these were just hairless wampas <laughs> you know attack you <laughs> is that a thing <laughs> i don't i don't that sounds so, terrifying but... <laughs> <laughs> hairless wampa that would totally creep me out like as much as like hairless cats do have you ever seen those <laughs> those fucking hairless cats it's like, gross, uh -huh. get that thing away from me. Jesus Christ. <laughs> They're still animals. They deserve sure, love, Sure, just David. not from me. <laughs> After discovering the air is breathable from R5's readings, he remarks that Bo-Katan was right that the planet actually isn't cursed. This is when Mando and Grogu make their descent into the Sandari City Civic Center as Bo-Katan instructed. Yeah, yet another example on why he shouldn't just blindly believe everything the armorer tells him. At the base of the the Civic Center, Mando and Grogu search for the mines and the living waters, and come across a Mandalorian helmet similar to Paz Vizsla's covered in dirt. When Din Djarin goes in to investigate, a giant crab-like droid controlled by a creature with one eye ensnares him, but luckily Grogu was far enough away to not get noticed. The creature piloting the droid takes him to his hideaway of sorts and locks Mando in a thin cage. This thing was an awesome design. Do we have a name for it? Um, I still haven't been able to find an actual name of what this was. So it's not like a pre-existing character that we've seen before, right? At least not that I'm aware of. Because I didn't recognize it from, you know, anything. Um, 
yeah, no, I love the design of this thing. It also made me want to see like a live action version of Darth Maul with the spider legs from Clone Wars. Mm, but yeah, yeah, I just I love all the different like aliens and creatures were being introduced so far um in this series and we're only like two episodes in after stripping mando of his weapons uh the alien shoves tubes into mando and seems to be draining him of blood after walking away grogu takes a chance at using the force to break mando free however this just alerts the creature and mando you know instructs grogu to just go find bo katan which leads our little green friend on a daring escape as he gets back into his pod and uses the force to blast enemies out of his way i'm glad that grogu doesn't feel so helpless this season i mean we've seen prior like when push came to shove like he could hold his own uh you know in an emergency situation but now it looks like that training with luke and you know him just getting older is starting to kind of like pay off and like he can actually go on little side missions like this yeah pre-k grogu now <laughs> We return to the ever-depressed Bo-Katan, again just sitting on her throne spacing out, when she gets alerted by her droid staff of an unscheduled visitor. Seeing that it's Mando's ship, she goes to make sure that Din Djarin never returns again. However, seeing that it was Grogu and R5 who made it there, she realizes that Din Djarin must be in trouble and has Grogu show her the way to him. Someone needs to score these scenes where Bo-Katan's like just brooding alone in her castle with some like Depeche Mode or New Order. Um, uh. like, like this is her life now. This is what she does. Like, I guess. Um, with that being said, I was kind of surprised at her willingness to go help, uh, you know, Mando to go help Dinjurin. Uh, I was wondering if she wasn't actually going to like try to take advantage of him in this situation or maybe she wants to make sure he stays alive so she can eventually you know regain the dark saber from him but maybe that's just me thinking the worst of people i think a part of her cares enough you know eventually later on you do see that but here i was like i don't know man she's doing a lot of brooding christian a lot of brooding uh-huh <laughs> <laughs> Bo-Katan breaking through the storm clouds over the planet she once ruled sees the ruins of Mandalore on approach to Din Djarin. Bo on the way there speaks of times when the Mandalorians and the Jedi fought side by side and how she used to know a few. While looking for Mando she finds more Alamites ready to ambush them. She dual wields her pistols taking them out. It goes on to explain her surprise to find their species alive and how they used to live in the wastelands which makes her wonder what else may have actually survived after the Empire's attack. The one thing this episode really demonstrated was like how much more of a skilled warrior Bo-Katan is compared to like Din Djurin. And not saying like Din Djurin's a lightweight or anything like that, but I mean, when you look at his like big battle scenes, I mean, the dude takes on a lot of damage and I mean, he relies heavily on his armor. <laughs> Um, yes. where Bo-Katan moves a lot more efficiently and is able to, like, you know, take out her opponents rather quickly. It does feel like if they were to face off, that Mando would be the underdog. Um, although it is his show, so I'm sure he would end up, you know, being victorious in the long run. If anything, Grogu can always cheat for him. That is absolutely true. But yeah, Bo-Katan saves Mando's ass more than once this episode. So she does feel kind of like the rightful leader of the Mandalorians at this point. Which is fair. Yes, yes. <laughs> As more and more of Din Djarin's blood is drained by our one-eyed enemy, 
Bo-Katan finally finds them. Utilizing the Darksaber that was left on the ground, she's able to get a strike in that takes out the creature's droid body. But while Bo attempts to free Mando, the head of the creature is able to detach from its smaller droid body and go back into its larger crab form, which Bo takes on and wins, saving Mando. Now this might be because I have horror on the brain, but this moment felt really inspired by Carpenter's thing to me. Just, you know, when the head like sprouts the legs and like runs off. I, I mean, at the time I didn't think of that because I was just, you know, watching a Star Wars project <laughs> and I don't have horror on my mind at all times, but I could totally see that. Well, welcome to my headspace, Christian. Um, but anyway, when it comes to the scene itself, like last season, we're doing a lot of like speculating, like on who would perhaps train Din on like the, using the Darksaber. And for some reason, Bo-Katan never came up, but she seems like the obvious choice, right? Yeah, I mean, she just wielded it yes. like it was nothing compared to, you know, Din Djarin, who was just struggling yeah, to Yeah, no, it. she was like the fucking bride from Kill Bill with that shit. So like, <laughs> <laughs> he could definitely use some pointers. After rescuing Din Djarin, Bo-Katan laments in the failures of Mandalore. When Din Djarin gets back up, while still you know being injured and weak from blood loss, Bo-Katan can't seem to understand why he is so stuck on fulfilling this quest, but ultimately decides to help him find the living waters. So while I still have my doubts on her motives here, because I still feel like she's waiting for the right moment to challenge him again for the Darksaber, um... It does feel like during the scene, she's starting to kind of admire him and his commitment to like the lore of Mandalore. The two of them make their way across the ruins of Mandalore, which all look like places straight out of the Clone Wars series. Bo talks on how the Mandalorians, you know, weaken themselves with all their infighting before the Empire's attack. Yeah, I'm still holding out hope that we get a couple more flashback sequences from uh, the Night of a Thousand Tears. We got that brief moment. Was it last season of... The Mandalorian, or was that in Book of Boba Fett where we saw all the TIE fighters attacking Mandalore? I I feel like it was Book of Boba Fett. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, but it's one hell of a scene, like seeing that giant like mm -hmm. fleet rain terror down on the planet. Um, give me more of that. Like, I want to see exactly what went down. <laughs> not all the pain and suffering. You know what I mean, Christian. Uh -huh, <laughs> I'm not sure, a monster, sure. I swear. <laughs> Entering the mines, Bo-Katan recalls, you know, bathing in the living waters as a member of the royal family. She tells how she recites the rites, but that it was all kind of a show for the people. When she tells how her father died defending Mandalore, she is surprised by Din Djarin's sign of respect as he reveres her father's actions by stating, you know, this is the way. She gives him a little glance here that has a lot of people speculating that there might be some feelings developing. Um, Grogu seems to call her out <laughs> in this moment. Uh, I hope that's not the case, honestly, though. Sinjarin doesn't got time for relationships like that. Yeah, well, even if she and neither does fucking Bo-Katan. <laughs> like, she's more worried about fucking leading her people and regaining the dark saber. Uh -huh. Come on. I just don't want to get ourselves into another, like, Rey and Kylo situation where they kind of, like, shoehorn that relationship into, like, the sequels just because the fans were demanding it. I don't think this is anywhere on that Well, level. yes, one didn't uh, commit genocide or anything, but still, like, uh -huh. it was just so unnecessary. But, okay. I'll stop. <laughs> 
I'm going to start <laughs> ranting. At the Living Waters, Bo-Katan is still dismissive of everything Din Djarin believes in. She reads a nearby plaque on how this was once, you know, the lair of a mythosaur that her ancestors, you know, once defeated. Din Djarin, however, is, you know, only concerned with getting redeemed for his transgressions after removing his weapons and jetpack, he begins to enter the Living Waters, taking step by step as he recites the Mandalorian Creed. But as he gets in deeper, Mando discovers the floor has caved in and falls deep into the water. Well, this was definitely a little embarrassing, right? <laughs> I mean, before that, you really saw the power of belief in that uh -huh. moment. <laughs> it's a nice metaphor, though, for where that's going to get him. Um, uh -huh. I did love that once again, it was Bo-Katan jumping in and saving the day. Um, you would think that this would buy her like a certain amount of loyalty from uh, Din. You know, because that's twice now in one day that she saved his ass. Um, mm -hmm. I'm wondering if down the line, her saving him is going to put him at odds with the children of the Watch. Especially since he's starting to discover there are some things that they kind of, you know, bent the truth about. Bo-Katan rushes to his aid, using her jetpack to propel into the water. In mere moments, it seems Din Djarin has hit the bottom of the water-filled cavern because of the weight of his armor. Struggling to get them both up, Bo-Katan uses her jetpack to head to the surface carrying Din Djarin. But on her way up, she sees the eyes of a mythosaur open as they pass the beast living in the water. Reaching the surface, Bo-Katan can only look back at the living waters as the stories she believed were only for children seem to be based in truth. Well, I guess this is the one thing they didn't lie about, right? <laughs> yeah. Holy shit, I was not expecting this. Uh, although we did kind of talk about like the possibility of seeing, I believe it was Boba Fett riding the Mythosaur. Because I think that's the first time we heard about the legend of the Mythosaur, right? Um, and we were kind of putting together the pieces, and we weren't alone on this, obviously. That, uh -huh. you know, since Boba Fett seems to be able to tame these large beasts, and he's riding a fucking Rancor at the end of the season, like, could Boba Fett possibly be the rightful ruler of Mandalore? Or could it be a situation where Boba Fett teaches, like, Mando or, you know, Bo-Katan for that matter, on how to, like, tame the beast? I just don't think that plot point was there on I mean, accident. It would be pretty intense to see Boba Fett riding a mythosaur. We've already seen uh, him ride her fucking rancor, so. <laughs> yeah, but that's like twice the size. Someone's riding that mythosaur, Christian. <laughs> I don't know if it's Boba Fett, but like I said, I could see him training, you know, Mando or, you know, Bo-Katan or whoever, you know, to do so. Or they could even use Grogu to like, you know, help calm the beast, right? Because we've seen him do that in the past. Uh-huh. I just feel since the, you know, the story of their ancestors is conquering the beast, they might just end up killing it. That just seems cruel. I think they're riding the motherfucker. All right. All right. But yeah, totally did not see that coming yeah. <laughs> at all. <laughs> yeah, but a hell of a cliffhanger to another action-packed episode. I believe this also had a shorter time run. Um, but like, if you're going to have these short time runs, like, this is how you do it. If anything, it didn't feel as short as last week, at least. I honestly didn't feel like last week's was that short because they didn't waste a minute of the episode. Well, with that being said, make sure to join us next week as we break down episode three of season three of The Mandalorian. And now for the nerds review of episode eight of The Last of Us. Spoilers ahead. Let's see what I go tell the others now. Ellie. What? Tell them that Ellie is a little girl who broke her fucking finger! So this was 
most likely my favorite episode yet, but honestly, I feel that way after every episode, so I don't know. Uh, but we start off with Ellie trying to nurse Joel back to health, uh, and she runs across one of the creepiest villains of the show yet, uh, David. Uh, he's a cult leader who uses religion to control his followers, uh, like, you know, most do. And, oh yeah, they happen to be cannibals. And most of them unknowingly so, which is even creepier. It's stated at one point that Winter's been harsh, and it looks like David has just resorted to feeding them their dead and who knows who else. At first, David is charismatic and almost likable, but you could definitely feel like there's an inner monster waiting to come out at some point. He comes across almost like he's trying to protect Ellie from his followers uh, once they discover it was Joel and her who killed one of their members last episode. And it's weird because at first I was so unsure like exactly what was going on with this group since like every scene, everyone except for David and his like right hand man just seems so quiet and miserable. But I wasn't sure if that was because they just like suffered the loss of one of their own. And maybe that was part of it. But then we get a taste of David's rage when the daughter demands vengeance for the loss of her father. And that's when I realized that part of what's happening here is they're terrified of David. I loved how Ellie was like the ultimate badass this episode. I mean, she really shows that she's willing to do whatever it takes to protect Joel, um, even like attempting to lead the cult away from him on horseback, firing a gun that she really just learned how to use. <laughs> but then we get to watch exactly what Joel is capable of as he literally rises from the dead once he realizes what's going on and that Ellie is in danger. Um, he's just on the warpath, killing and torturing motherfuckers uh, to find her. But Ellie shows that she is a true survivor and is more than capable of fending for herself. When we see her tap into something primal within after David reveals like his true intentions and like the sick psycho that he really is. Before all is said and done, like she's left part of the town burning and she's just slaughtered David in this epic like display of unbridled rage. Um, this was probably one of the most satisfying endings of the show yet. It was hard not to be moved, like when Joel and Ellie finally reunite, and we hear Joel try to console her, calling her baby girl, as he holds her in her arms. I just thought, like, the scenes between David and Ellie, where David, like, recognizes, you know, all the anger and violence she has within herself, tries to manipulate it, and it just gloriously backfires in his face. Um, this world and all the survivors are just so broken um and i'll admit it like i groaned when i figured out the whole like cannibal angle um you know pretty early on it was actually when they were like talking about waiting to bury one of their members till spring um it just feels like such a trope that we've seen so many times you know over the years in these like post-apocalyptic stories but like The Last of Us just operates on a different level and they just brilliantly used it to really like explore Ellie's character. But yeah, we're eight episodes in and it just feels like the show continues to get better and better every week. 
Yeah, I totally agree with what you were saying. We've seen the you know cannibal story play out in several apocalypse films. Um, it just feels like your typical trope nowadays. But you know, with The Last of Us, you get more of the character story elements that you know build into. Uh, this is like a huge moment in the game where you finally switch over to playing as Ellie for the very first time, and you get to see her do all of her crazy kills and shit like that. Um, and you see the impression that Joel has left on her, and I feel like as an adaptation of that, they still did a fantastic job without while they strip away you know you doing all the searching and hunting as her you get to see you know how she is as a character um still you know get through all of this i thought it was really well handled especially the way david is with her uh, i just felt like man they really nailed the creepiness on a new level by adding those you know those religious tones to the character um that weren't in the game you know it's implied there but it's definitely not at anywhere near this level like what you were saying with the restaurant and, and the family like his old cult that was so much more yes to um, and i just love the little wrinkle of like him not even necessarily being a true believer at least that's what he kind of implies yeah. that he's just using it as a means to get what he wants that it wasn't religion that inspired this new way of life for him but it was actually you know what he saw with the clickers like I said, I mean, this was such a satisfying ending. Um, you know, I'm like, while I'm happy that we got to see Joel go on a bit of a rampage, I'm glad at the end of the day that Ellie saves herself, showing once again just mm -hmm. how capable and, and how strong she's grown as like a character. Exactly. Really implying also the darkness within her. And I also love that uh, David kind of reinforced all the same ideas that um, the previous episode showed with her like uh, major or whoever is mm -hmm. above her. Yeah. It's also foreshadowed in an earlier episode where, you know, she's in the basement of that abandoned store with Joel and she finds mm -hmm. the uh, clicker caught underneath uh, rubble and she like goes and like, you know, slowly kills it on her own. And we're like, what the fuck? That's like, this like, <laughs> like in that moment, she kind of felt like that strange kid in the neighborhood that everyone eyes when like the neighborhood pets start disappearing. <laughs> you know who I'm talking about. Uh-huh. Yeah, you. Um... <laughs> I've never heard an animal, Christian. Sure. And then you caught that, you know, the baby girl, how it's the same thing he called his daughter yes. um, in the first episode. Yeah. yeah, I brought that up. Good shit. Good shit. <laughs> yes. Yes. I agree. I agree. Um, and that's also like the first embrace that they've actually shared, mm -hmm. right? I don't know, man. Uh, if, if they do it right, if they do it justice, I, I mean, this episode, I think, has been the most faithful um, since the second episode of this series like they didn't divert too far from what actually happens in the game uh, so i mean if they if they go into this last episode with the with how the actual sh uh, game ended i'm very excited to see you know your reaction yeah i mean i've got mixed emotions like part of me obviously is excited to see like the finale of this season um i mean we've had eight amazing episodes so far um but i'm also you know, disappointed at the same time that the season's coming to a close and we're probably going to have to wait two whole years for the second season. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so, I mean, I don't know. Hopefully they stick the landing. But with that said, make sure to join us next week for the finale of The Last of Us. And now a quick word from our sponsor, Manscaped. This is a public service announcement. 
Manscaped now has beard products and is going even further with their brand new Weed Whacker 2.0. Go ahead and tell the world the leaders in below the waist grooming are traveling north of your South Pole with their revolutionary grooming products. The new Weed Whacker 2.0 and their new beard line confirms they have all the best tools for your hygiene toolbox. Time for you to upgrade your game by going to manscaped.com and using our code 20NERDSHOW for 20% off plus free shipping. Listeners know that there's no one I trust more with my nutsack than Manscaped, so why not trust them with my beard also? So allow me to introduce you to the Beard Hedger Pro Kit. It's the ultimate package that makes it easier than ever to craft your signature look. It all starts with the cordless electric Beard Hedger. The Beard Hedger is tough on hair but smooth on your face, leading to single stroke efficiency that brings satisfaction one stroke at a time just like your mother. <laughs> this waterproof cordless trimmer has a rotary wheel that gives you 20 hair cutting lengths, all with one guard, so no more messy drawers full of extra add-ons. The Pro Kit also comes with four dermatologist tested formulations for your post-trim care. This includes Manscaped's beard shampoo and conditioner, beard oil, and beard balm to moisturize, style, and shimmer your new beard. Plus the kit has three gifts, a beard brush, a comb, and scissors. So with a nice beard, your face is perfectly groomed, right? Wrong! You need to keep an eye out for those tough to trim ear and nose hairs. The brand new Weed Whacker 2.0 offers improved blades and skin safe technology with virtually no tugging. It's never been so painless to mind your manholes. Now that you have your face looking great, you must try Manscaped's Performance Package 4.0 for the full body grooming experience. Good news though, the Performance Package 4.0 now comes with the Weed Whacker 2.0 and all the other below the waist grooming products Manscaped is known for. Your significant other will be delighted to see you covering all bases, if you know what I mean. So listeners, get 20% off and free shipping with our code 20NerdShow at Manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and make sure to use our code 20NerdShow. Always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. And now it's time for Christian's Corner. This week on what's going on with Microsoft and Xbox, apparently they attempted to make a deal with Sony for Call of Duty to be accessible on PlayStation and PS Plus for the same duration as Game Pass. And you know what the Sony CEO said, according to Activision CCO, um, Lulu Cheng uh, Merceve? Apologize if I'm, you know, just butchering that per usual. But uh, they said, fuck your deal, basically, uh, claiming that they don't want to make a deal here. They just want to stop the Activision Blizzard merger altogether. So this battle just continues to rage on. Um, it, it literally just feels like a whole new wrinkle to the fucking, you know, console wars, unlike anything we've ever seen before. So I'm just kind of laughing at it all as it happens. I still feel like Microsoft's going to get the merger in the end, but it... It is what it is. It's it's fun watching them, you know, fight over Call of Duty, which is a franchise that I've personally just lost all interest in. I know it is still a massive community though of gamers that play it. So It'll be interesting to see what happens if you know Sony and Microsoft can't come to an agreement here. Um, in the meantime, though, there was also some big gaming news for Starfield this week, as we got the official release date set for September 6th of this year, with more on the game breaking this June on the 11th, following the Xbox Game Showcase for the summer. Um, they're calling it uh, Starfield Direct, I'm guessing as to continue their developer Direct series. Um, you all know by now, I'm a big Bethesda diehard fan so at this point you know 
the game comes out broken or not, I'm ready to play this bad boy day one. I mean, in fact, I've already told my girlfriend, you know, right before recording this, that I don't expect to see me that month. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not available. <laughs> We will, of course, be doing live reactions to the Xbox Showcase and the Starfield Direct as we do with, you know, every E3 season. We do live streams for all the big things going on during that time. So make sure to stop by our Twitch channel as we cover it all live. We go live actually every weekend as well. Right now we're playing um, Horizon Forbidden West and Dead Space, though this weekend we're actually going to be adding on Resident Evil's Chainsaw demo. So find us on Twitch, leave a follow and catch our streams. Uh, we're usually live around noon but I think I'm gonna have to do some night streams this weekend anyway especially on Sunday I will be too busy during the day so we'll be streaming at night but all right with that said let's move on to some wrestling next week marks the fifth and final defense of the AEW All-Atlantic Championship on international soil it is the only AEW championship ever to change hands on international soil and next week in partnership with Warner Brothers Discovery to support the release of Shazam! Fury of the Gods next week in Winnipeg, it will be Orange Cassidy versus Double J Jeff Jarrett for the AEW International Championship. Next week in Winnipeg, we will level up the championship. It will be a huge match, a huge milestone for AEW, and all of us are so excited about the release of Shazam! Fury of the Gods, and we can't wait for Wednesday Night Dynamite in Winnipeg Orange Cassidy versus Jeff Jarrett for the AEW International Championship as we level up the championship in AEW. All right, well, this past weekend, we had the AEW Revolution pay-per-view. Uh, I thought it was one hell of a card. I know last week we kind of mentioned that we we're going to probably review the pay-per-view, but I don't know, in talking before the show started, we I think we made the decision that we're just going to more focus on the aftermath and what took place on Dynamite since, you know, this episode for us isn't going to drop until Saturday. So that's almost a week mm. after the show. Uh, but we'll mention our thoughts about, like, you know, the pay-per-view matches as we go along through all the happenings on uh, Dynamite. Now, I'll be upfront. I missed the first hour of the show. I spent most of Wednesday night in the ER because I sprained my knee. Um, it, knock on wood, that's all I did. Uh, <laughs> I still have to go to an orthopedic. Uh, but um, when I came home, apparently Hulu only recorded the last hour of the show for some reason. That sucks. Yes, yes. So, I mean... I know exactly what happened just through, you know, YouTube and, you know, Twitter, but uh, Christian will kind of lead the way, at least with the first hour. So what do we have up first, Christian? Well, uh, as it has been the fourth week in a row now, Orange Cassidy had to defend the All-Atlantic title, um, this time against Jay Lethal uh, again. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, he's faced off against Jay Lethal. Yes, multiple before, times right? uh, at this point. Uh, it's, it is what, what it is. Hell? I mean, this time it actually <laughs> felt like Lethal almost had a chance. I mean, they were, the match uh, really played into, you know, Cassidy's been, you know, in a lot of these recently, uh, doing double time last week, you know, and everything. So they really were kind of okay. playing on the fact that Cassidy's been kind of overworking himself. Um, yeah, he's that fighting champion. Exactly. Right? And I like that about the title, that it's like the workers' mode. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the feel that Darby recently brought back with the uh, TNT title, where it was like, you know, an open challenge type deal. Uh, I mean, is it a little redundant? Yes, <laughs> but, but I like the fact that we're guaranteed like a title match mm -hmm. every week at this point. 
Uh, Lethal and Cassidy both did a good job of selling their injuries that they've been going through. Um, like Cassidy's apparently got something going on with his knee, and then they also got a shoulder issue for um, Lethal in this match. And they both, like, that just really became, you know, the, the kind of ending towards the match where they're just both beating each other in their injury spots. Uh, Cassidy does get the win here, uh, but at the end, we have Jeff Jarrett coming out with the guitar and slamming it right onto the knee of Cassidy. Yeah, I definitely saw the clips of what went down with Jarrett, um, you know, on social media. Um, and we do know later on, Tony made what I guess you could call an announcement uh, about Cassidy issuing an open challenge to Jeff Jarrett and leveling up the belts to be a international title and it's all in uh, correspondence with a promotion for Shazam and a partnership with Warner Brothers and yeah I mean it just felt like Tony was vomiting words Um, (laughs) I don't know um, if he should be on the mic uh, much because I I don't know this was a disaster and this was pre-recorded like that's what's insane about it (laughs) like it felt almost like a parody Uh to me uh uh, like you know on like you know maybe like wwe's like corporate speak but i I don't think so i think this was just tony because we both heard him in interviews and this is just kind of like how he talks uh but dear lord tag adam colin again like and have him make the announcement for you because yeah this was a disaster um, but I'm excited for the name change for the title. I don't know what the hell it has to do with Shazam, though. <laughs> I'm almost expecting Zachary Levi to just show up there as Shazam. Maybe. Because they, like, is it a gimmick match? Are they going to be wearing capes or something? I don't think so. Like, we saw them do something uh, similar with the trios match between the Elite and Top Flight, where it had this, like, basketball theme, and there was literally a basketball in the fucking match uh-huh. to start things off. But, like, it was the elite, so it was kind of, like, tongue-in-cheek, and they made it work. Um, I just don't see this working if it is, like, a cross-promotional thing, and it has, like, some weird superhero theme going. Um, But whatever. I mean, it is a good sign, like, that Warner Brothers has faith in AEW. Um, But, yeah, I I don't know. I'm also terrified that Jeff Jarrett is going to win this belt. You think he'll be the first, you know, international champion? I mean, the storylines that you were talking about in this match with Orange Cassidy now being exhausted after defending the belt week after week and, you know, them working an injury angle also on top of it really points in that direction, Mm, Christian. It does. So I wouldn't be surprised. Now, Jarrett's run hasn't been all bad, I will say. Like, you know, he is one hell of a heel. I don't know. And I'm like, I'm sure whoever ends up, you know, taking the belt from Jared, if that does happen, you know, he'll put over big time. But there's just so many other wrestlers on the roster that I'd rather see an opportunity. I mean, hell, I didn't want to see Jay Lethal get another like title (laughs) shot because right when he faced Cassidy, wasn't it for the title? Uh, The last time we saw him? Yeah. Against each other? Yes. So am I to believe that there's no other worthy contenders on the roster? (laughs) I guess not. Tony just loves Lethal and Jarrett. Holy shit. Apparently. I don't get it. Like, they're fine and everything like that, but, like, they're featured so heavily. I want, like, I'm wondering if it's an analytics thing where they're just, like, drawing big numbers every week. Because otherwise, I just can't make sense of it. 
Well, after this, uh, Renee was in the back uh, talking with Powerhouse Hobbs, uh, who had to you know, enlighten us about all of Wardlow's travel issues recently, where his car got jacked uh, and the title was stolen off of him. Um, even so, uh, Hobbs plans on taking the title either way. Yeah, the title was stolen from the car, right? Yes. Supposedly. Mm-hmm. Like, this felt like an angle to me. I know, like, Wardlow posted it on social media, but I was like, eh... I don't know. Um, but we'll get more into that later on. After this, Ricky Starks made his way out, uh, claiming that he doesn't know exactly what his next direction is, but he's glad to be done uh, with Jericho. Um, and then out of nowhere, the Bullet Club music hit, and uh, the whole crowd was shocked to see Juice Robinson attack from behind. So, yeah, you were saying that a lot of people thought it was going to be Jay White, right? Yeah, that, that was the general and, consensus. <laughs> yeah, and rightfully so, since we know he's a huge free agent right now, and there's a lot of speculation on, on exactly where he's going to land. Um, so I'm sure people were a little disappointed when it was just Juice. Um, you know, I, I mean, I think part of it's the way AEW's been using Juice. Like, he's just been kind of like one of the guys on the roster Uh like he's been featured heavily on like dark and elevation but like not much else like he had the one match against moxley and it was kind of a dud um so i don't know this just feels like a step down after a big feud for ricky starks um against jericho um i was expecting to see him move up the card and not like jump into like a nothing happening feud. And I, I guess I'm being kind of hard on juice and where this could be going, but I don't know. I don't see a lot of promise here um, unless they are really planning on like elevating juice. I mean, I can only hope. And I, I'll be honest too. Like I haven't been a fan of juice as a heel and him being part of bullet club. And I wasn't a big fan of him as a baby face, but I think I prefer him as a baby face, comparatively speaking. Yeah, I didn't mind his face run in New Japan. I thought that was fine. I hate all his stupid hats. Maybe that was part of it. (laughs) He's great on the mic, but like him in the ring just doesn't do much for Mm. me. Like I can tell that he's obviously a capable worker, but I don't know. Like everything he does feels so like forced. After this, we had a moment with Wardlow in the back, where he explained that he got some gear from FTR, uh, but now that he's dressed in more of a street clothing wear, he's like, "Let's just make this falls count anywhere," um, and that's what they're going to plan on doing for the main event. Sure, why not? <laughs> <laughs> Once again, like I just I, I don't know. It feels all like. Like an angle to me um, after the match last Sunday between the three women for the uh, women's title we got the official turn of Ruby Soho um, and she came out this week to explain the reasons why which I, I gotta say it was probably one of the best women's promos of this year so far uh, where she explains you know uh, the fans, you know, have been booing the shit out of her since day one you know coming to the company you know and, and she really digged in on when she lost to Britt Baker um, and then when she also lost to Chris Statlander or after she beat Chris Statlander I should say. Yeah I mean the the fans were definitely with her when she first like debuted so that's a bit much but there (laughs) were definitely moments throughout like her AEW run so far where the crowd did turn Mm -hmm. on her um, all in the name of supporting like a homegrown talent. I know a lot of people were saying this was like your typical like WWE you know trope heel turn where they you know blame the fans you know I I get it Um, I 
take issue with that kind of heel turn where it comes out of nowhere. But I thought this promo made perfect sense for Ruby's story. So I was fine with it. And I thought by far this was the best promo cut in this like angle so far. Um, as far as the match uh, on Sunday, I was fine with the match. I just didn't. I, I don't understand why she didn't turn during it, why it had to happen afterwards. I yeah, I, I, I kind of agree. It felt a little weird that, you know, she wrestled the match against Soraya and then she ended up siding with her yeah. at the end. I just wish there was like a beat like after the match, you know, like maybe done through, you know, facials where just frustration washes over her and, you know, we see her come to the realization that she's lost another big match and like, it just clicks that, you know, it's time for a change. Um, and that's when we see her side with, you know, Soraya and Tony, um, you know, cause the way that they did it, it felt so sudden where I could see it being misconstrued that like, this was the plan all along which just wouldn't make sense for the way the match was laid out. Exactly. I mean, that's how it felt to me. So it just seemed like they just came to this plan like, hey, we lost, but we're still going to uh, team up together. Team up together. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was, it was a little weird. weird. Um, anyway, Ruby Soho demanded that her you know, homegrown opponent come out. Uh, poor Sky Blue makes her way to the ring and immediately gets uh, put on her ass uh, pretty quickly by Soho. Uh, they do end up still having a back and forth. Soho does come out at the end as victorious. Uh, of course, they do, you know, try and spray paint her. But Willow tries to come out and protect her and also tell, you know, uh, Soho that th this isn't you. Of course, Soho then just gives her a big kick to the face uh, to show that it is her. From the way it sounds like it, it was kind of a wasted moment where they could have drawn that out a little, maybe, and made that into a bigger, like, moment later on. Um, but I, I didn't see it, so I can't really judge. But what I can judge is I, I do feel like Ruby should probably be the mouthpiece for this group. Because um, like I said before, this was by far the best promo anyone has cut like, you know, during this storyline. Um, so just give Ruby the mic because Soraya has just been kind of all over the place, um, you know, when she's, you know, doing her backstage interviews and everything. Like, it's been getting better. And I do believe Soraya looked a lot better in the match on the pay-per-view, too. I do want to say that. So I feel like some of that rust is finally coming off. Um, and we'll kind of see her kind of like return to form. Um, but yeah, like all the mic work, I feel like has been kind of lackluster, you know, even on both sides, honestly. So like, this was the first like story beat that like, I feel like worked. So they've been pushing Rio a lot lately. Um, she's been picking up a lot of big like wins, um, and I know on Rampage, Rio gets a win over Nyla Rose, and there's there's some kind of interaction between her and um, the Outsiders. I, do they have an official name yet? I don't. I don't think so. At least okay. <laughs> um, so I'm wondering if it's going to be Rio who ends up joining with Britt and um, Jamie. Uh, you know, I, I, I think we both believe that we would see Sheeta eventually like come uh -huh. into the folds, but I don't know if Sheeta's still dealing with an injury or something. Um, but that just doesn't seem to be the case anymore. So it is what it is. I'm all for Rio. 
you know, getting some spotlight here. I know, but I if mean, this... she's so over with the crowd. Uh, I mean, it just makes sense to use her. But if this goes to a blood and guts match, I just can't imagine her oh in that God, situation. <laughs> all, like her wearing all white, uh-huh. too. And that does feel like where they're probably headed. I, I'm all for it. I'm sure she'll pull it off. Brutal. A badass little Rio, like taking names. That'd be hell yeah. After this, we had a backstage moment with Hangman Adam Page with Renee, you know, just trying to see where Page is mentally and physically after their match um, with Moxley uh, this past Sunday. Uh, Page essentially says he's done with Moxley. He's ready to move on and see what's next for him. Um, and, you know, Renee will go and check to see how Moxley's doing uh, later on, I guess. So uh, Texas Death definitely delivered on the pay-per-view. One of the best, you know, Texas Death matches I've ever seen. Um, I mean, the fork spot alone uh, will definitely be one wrestling moment I'll never forget. Absolutely brutal. Um, (laughs) um, I loved the finish seeing like, you know, Hangman actually hang someone uh, and getting Moxley to tap out. Yes. uh, Which... I don't remember ever happening. Uh, maybe in his WWE run is uh, Dean Ambrose. Yeah, apparently it's been 10 years. I don't remember what opponent it was, but it's apparently been since uh, 2013 was the last time he actually tapped out in a match. Wow. Wow. And I guarantee you he was a heel at the time. And as we uh, see later on uh, in the night, it looks like Moxley and the Blackpool Combat Club are definitely heels now. But in regards to the pay-per-view match, I thought this did a great job of, like, reestablishing who Hangman Page is. And I wouldn't be surprised if we don't see him in the world title picture sooner than later. I kind of hope he holds on to that entrance. Uh, I I really dug it. I don't know. I like his original theme. Like, this was nice as a one-off, but the original theme is kind of, like, growing on me, so... It can it can pass. It's all right. We can move on. You don't like it? It's not it's not that it's I don't like it. It's not it doesn't do anything for me. You know, it's it's there. Well, that means you don't like it, Christian. <laughs> I don't <laughs> hate it. To each his own. But yeah, no, I don't know. It's probably in my like top five AEW themes, but I don't like a lot of the AEW themes, honestly. But I will say they're much better than what WWE has going on music wise. So. I mean, it's a straight rave every time Jamie Hayter comes out. I'll tell you that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Are you busting out like the. <laughs> oh, yeah. Are you busting out like glow sticks, Christian? Hell yeah. Making the lights flash, everything. Yeah. Well, people can't see right now. Christian's actually dancing for us. So. <laughs> All right, we got a video package from MJF where uh, he, you know, claims that he's going to be single in San Francisco and that his birthday is coming up for Winnipeg. Uh, I don't know what that you know necessarily means, but. Well, he's having his rebar mitzvah. That's oh, what it means. Now, okay. I don't think that's a real thing. but <laughs> <laughs> So I'm guessing we're going to have some kind of like celebration in the ring and, you know, a whole lot of bragging and then his new like challenger will reveal themselves after this ftr made their way to the ring and kind of explained you know why they're going after the guns uh, after being gone for so long they've been you know just dying to get back into the ring but not only that they were you know tired of seeing the guns call themselves the best well yeah and like the last time we saw ftr it was taking a loss to the guns mm-hmm. so storyline wise it makes sense uh I thought the match on the pay-per-view, the four-way, was okay. 
Um, I get that you want the acclaim to at least get their, you know, title rematch. Um, but I almost wish it was one-on-one. Uh, but I guess they didn't want the acclaim to eat the loss again. And also, like, with all the rumors going around, you know, FTR and, like, their contract status, it was a bit of a sigh of relief for me um, to see FTR, you know, back on AEW uh, TV, um, you know, and it got a huge pop from the crowd. So I understand what Tony was doing. Um, and I get, like, if FTR are going to be AEW champions this year, you probably want them taking the belts off of a heel team and not the acclaim. Mm-hmm. So. I understand that you claim, honestly, they'll be fine. Like, they're over regardless, and they'll eventually get back in the title picture, I'm sure. I mean, I will say, you know, the style at the beginning of the match, while I do understand, you know, um, the two heel sides, you know, had an understanding, it just felt like I was watching an eight-man tag match, you know, going back and forth, like it was Survivor Series style, where it was just Uh the heels helping the heels and the faces helping the faces. And I was just like, no, this is not how this works. There's no no (laughs) one would be tagging in, you know, people that aren't their own partner like this. It was insane. Uh, Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. That is annoying. Um, I almost prefer when they do, like, multiple team matches like this that they, you know, go underneath, like, tornado rules. Um, and then just like, you don't have to worry about tags or anything, exactly. you know, do it like Lucha style. After this, we had Jay Cargill in the back. Um, Cargill, you know, doesn't feel like there's a worthy enough challenge for herself. She's 53 and 0. Uh, so she's going to go to Winnipeg and she's going to challenge whoever is the best in Canada to go up against her. I don't know who might be coming out for that, but you know, it is what it is. Yeah. I don't know any like top name like canadian women wrestlers so like nothing's coming to mind right now um so i'm curious to see exactly who gets the title shot um i just have a feeling that this is probably another enhancement match though Hmm. um but hopefully like afterwards like at the end like she gets like that like proper contender coming out because it is about time that she (laughs) gets to work a real program because i mean really like like I don't know. It's just been insane what they've done with that belt. Like, it just feels like it's been, like, months since she's had, a like, a real storyline. Yeah. Was Nyla the last, like, real angle that, like, Jade was in? Outside of the baddies, yeah. But I don't even count the baddies. Because they, they never felt like worthy contenders. No, but, I mean, you, they did contenders. treat it like it was a real story for her. I mean, they were yeah, booking it that way. It was so weak, and, like, they never did anything to, you know, really, like, elevate either of them. Hmm. Um, It just felt like a match for a match's sake, and, you know, just to give, like, Jade something to do. Um, And even, like, the Nyla storyline seemed ridiculous, <laughs> even though I believe Nyla as a contender for the belt. A lot more than Red Velvet. And that's not Red Velvet's fault. That's just the way she's been booked. Uh-huh. Red Velvet, she does the stirring thing. I don't even... That, see? That's... <laughs> this thing right here, she does this. No? Not ringing any bells. I don't remember her doing what? that. <laughs> Jesus Christ, Christian. When was the last time you watched a Red Velvet match? <laughs> I don't know. That shit's on Rampage, man. Well, we definitely, we definitely know when you're taking your bathroom breaks. <laughs> Uh, up next, we had the six-man tag match between uh, JAS and Top Flight. Um, a standard good match, you know, between the two. I expect you know a good time out of Top Flight whenever I see them. So, 
yeah, I thought it was fun. I liked, you know, everything uh, JAS was doing in the ring, mm-hmm. like all the posing and shit. Um, I'm glad Jericho has moved on from Ricky Starks. I was kind of dreading this dynamite, just like, oh my god, is he going to find a way to stretch this feud out yeah. even further? Um, but that wasn't the case. As far as the match uh, that Jericho and Starks had on um, Revolution, I thought it was a good opener. And I'm just glad that Jericho did the right thing and put Starks over. Because I do feel like in the long run, it did elevate like Starks' status on the card. Yeah, to fight Juice Robinson. He'll get over on Juice. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I know I had my doubts, but it'll be fine. I know, but it's just funny that Ricky's doing that, and then after what we found out after this match, Jericho's going after the trio's titles. You know, he's he's up in line for another title match. I think that's more of a product of them being in Winnipeg next week. Yeah, most likely. So that's where Jericho's from. You have him facing off against Kenny, who's also from Winnipeg. So that just makes sense. Now, with that being said, I did like how all of this like played out. You know, we had JS um, celebrating the ring. They got on the mic saying that they were the number one contenders for the trios titles, even though they've like won one match. Yeah. Um, but I mean, that's what a heel group should do. Uh, and then we had the lights turn out. Everyone was expecting House of Black, but we got the elite instead. Um, we had a nice back and forth between um, Don Callis and Jericho, uh, who we know have a longstanding friendship. Um, but, you know, Callis had some nice lines saying that, you know, he's the second best wrestler from Winnipeg. And if Callis had a couple days to trade, Jericho would actually be the third best wrestler from Winnipeg. Um, it, it was nice to hear Callis on the, the mic again. So I know he does some announcing when, you know, the elite are in the ring. But it's been a while since we've like had like, you know, heel, you know, manager Callis, you know, uh, on the mic proper. So um, I do feel like they're kind of hinting at like Kenny breaking away from the group. We did have a social media post with Kenny and Callis and um, Kenny was back in his like ridiculous suits that he was wearing during his title reign. Uh-huh. So I- I'm guessing he's going to break away from the elite and we're going to get like heel, you know, Kenny. Or perhaps this is all going to kind of play out in what we've seen uh, recently between Callis and Takeshita. So, um, who knows? I mean, maybe we get like a tag match, you know, with like Kenny and Takesha versus the Bucks or something like that. You know, mm. like, do they, you know, does that all start like tension or something like that? Or maybe like Takesha ends up being like Callis's new favorite toy or something and Kenny gets jealous. So uh, we'll just have to wait and see. But, but after this, we do see House of Black um, do some, you know, spooky poo magic and, you know, cut a promo backstage and then teleport to the ramp somehow. Um, I don't know. It is what it is. Um, the match itself on the pay-per-view I thought was fantastic, though. Like, I could watch these two teams, the Elite and House of Black, go all day. Yes. They really did a great job of putting over, like, what a monster Brody King was here, though. So, which I wouldn't be surprised with, like, kind of the tumultuous relationship that Tony seems to have with Alistair. That, like, you know, he would want to focus on Brody since he seems to be more of a stable commodity, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. But with all that being said, I'm really looking forward to like triple threat trios match. Um, I'm sure it's going to steal the show. 
Um, and I'm guessing this is kind of like the Elite's last hurrah in the trio's division for a while. I'm surprised that we're not going to, if Kenny does turn, that they wouldn't you know, have Adam Page a part of that storyline. No, I agree. And that's kind of where I thought they were headed. But then, you know, we, we had what happened later on in the night. Or maybe up next. I don't know where we're at on the card. <laughs> well, before we get into that match, um, we had a you know a word from Brian Danielson about the Iron Man match and you know what really happened uh, at the end there. Uh, yes, losing um, feeling to his arms and such. This was just great storytelling mm-hmm. and one hell of a promo, and shows you why you know Brian Danielson is one of the best wrestlers in the world because he's just so fucking well rounded that you know he can wrestle matches like we saw on the pay-per-view and he can also cut like promos like this where you could tell there's like true emotion behind it. Um, But I should have known better. And like, this was just like next level storytelling throughout the match. Uh, And I don't feel like it was a case of like Brian carrying MJF. Um, You know, I think they both worked well together and, you know, told just a fantastic story. Um, you know, to the very last second, um, you had MJF like proving himself and like standing toe to toe against Brian, but like he was doing a lot of little things like, you know, rolling out of the ring, getting bottles of water, you know, just enough to make you like doubt whether or not he really has the endurance Mm -hmm. to last against Brian. And that all end up coming into play at the end of the match where, you know, we see, you know, him make it to the final bell and then like tap out the predictable moment of them going to sudden death, which I was totally fine with, but the way MJF sold it and (laughs) the way like Brian just looked so elated and fucking Shivani like was basically celebrating. Uh Uh, (laughs) But then to like, you know, have the dastardly MJF, you know, steal a win by using the oxygen tank uh, and Brian actually tap out, which is the second member of the Blackpool Combat Club to do so, um, you know, on the night. Uh, and I feel like it really just proved that, like, at this point, there should be no doubt that, like, MJF is indeed one of the best wrestlers in the world, even though we don't see him wrestle on a weekly basis. Um, like, well, what, do you, what does he call himself? A special attraction. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But rightfully so, because like he always delivers in the ring when, you know, it comes down to it. And it's just funny to me, like, I don't know. And I think I'm probably guilty of this, too. Like, it's like almost like short term memory loss where we forget, like, just how great he is because there's so much time in between his matches. I mean, the last match he had was against Starks, right? Yeah. Yeah. And. I don't know, that kind of felt like out of nowhere because he just won the pay-per-view. But then, like, it's been a couple months since then. So, um, yeah, usually it's, like, once every pay-per-view cycle. And I'm sure that's part of the reason why a lot of fans think it might just be a fluke. But at this point, hanging with Brian in this kind of match, telling this kind of story, there should be no doubt anymore. I mean, some of those sequences they were pulling off just at the start of the match alone— 
You know, they were getting timing down with each other in in ways we had like it rarely see with other wrestlers. It's it was crazy well, the performance you know, they were pulling. A off. lot of the sequences though reminded me of what we got with Darby and MJF. Do you remember that match? It was um, the match on the pay per view where uh, MJF was telling Darby that he was going to beat him with the fucking headlock. Okay. Yes. Uh-huh. And that's exactly what he ended up doing. But like, it was kind of like the match of the night. Because it came out of nowhere. Like, people weren't expecting that much from it. Mm-hmm. But those two had such great chemistry together. And they pulled off so many, like, amazing sequences. And that's what we got here with, like, MJF and Brian. Because, I mean, regardless of MJF's character saying that he's in it for the glory and the money, you can tell he's a real student of the game. And even though, like, he says he hates New Japan wrestling, and maybe that's the case... Like, it's obvious that he's done his, like, homework and he watches everything, um, you know, because he wouldn't be able to wrestle this style of match if that wasn't the case. I mean, I think if he does end up going to WWE, he could really be one of their biggest stars ever. Oh, oh, I 100% agree. If they're, if he's used right, yes, 100%. Mm-hmm. I just, I worry about a censored and nerfed, like, MJF. And I feel like that's what we're going to get in WWE. But he does feel like the perfect opponent for Cody Mm -hmm. to go up against. They have the history, which you know they'll play off of. Um, I just just don't want to see MJF in WWE, though, because it'd be such a huge blow to AEW. I find it hard to believe that MJF doesn't have some kind of contract extension at this point. <laughs> like, I know it's all part of the storyline uh-huh. and everything like that, but I can't imagine Tony being foolish enough to put MJF in, like, this kind of spotlight without having some kind of ink on paper. Mm-hmm. So, um, but who knows? After this, we had uh, the Combat Club's John Moxley and Claudio defeating Alex Reynolds and John Silver of the Dark Order. And then attempting to murder them afterwards. Yes. Um, Which, (laughs) you know, ended up calling Mark. Which, because of this, you know, in turn had Hangman come out to make the save. Um, So it it looks like the feud's not over. Um, I was speculating before off mic that maybe we'll see like a trios match between these two groups. Um, I just don't know where else they can go in the storyline unless like Hangman is going to end up being like a contender for like the ROH title and like maybe the focus of the feud switches from, you know, Moxley and Hangman to Claudio Claudio. and (laughs) Hangman. Um, I also could see this being more of a continuation of the Dark Order storyline where maybe like after the trios match, we see like the Dark Order, like out of frustration, turn on Hangman. Um, for some reason, because at this point, the, the Dark Order just needs like a, a fresh coat of paint. We saw glimmers of a more serious tone, uh, you know, from Evil Uno and the group. So I wouldn't be opposed to them heading in that direction. But regardless, the one thing's for certain is the Blackpool Combat Club are apparently heels now. Officially. Um, no longer, you know, in-betweeners. Uh they're just straight up trying to kill people. They don't give a shit about the rules. And I guess they never really have, but now it's more blatant. Uh, and I'm all for this. Um, it'll be interesting for, you know, when Brian does eventually come back, because it's not like he's actually retiring or anything. Um, you know, he's been so disconnected from the group that 
like you know i would guess that they would probably come in conflict because brian's definitely been playing more of a babyface role mm. um but i don't know if that's just a product of him being in a feud with mjf you know maybe brian comes back and you know he's a monster heel along with the group the rest of the group um which i wouldn't also mind seeing so <laughs> but then they would just be unstoppable so um you know but th- that would set up a really cool feud maybe between like them and the elite because it seems like they're trying to keep them apart right now right yeah which i do hope to see uh the combat club go up against the elite but i don't you know i, I definitely think they need to put wheeler in more matches like i, I was surprised like a part of me was surprised that moxley he's, was in this match at all he's been wrestling of, a lot wheeler though i think you're i think you're not seeing it because you don't watch rampage yes yeah, that's probably he, most likely the issue. Yeah, but you remember he had that awesome opening match against Orange uh, recently, mm-hmm. too. So I feel like they have been focusing more on Wheeler, but, you know, there was a you know a time where it did feel like Wheeler was getting lost in the shuffle. So I get what you're saying. I thought Moxley should have not been in this match based off of what happened to him on Sunday. No, no, yeah, no, I get that, because, yeah, he was, you know, hanged alive. Mm-hmm. So... <laughs> And we saw Moxley tap for the first time in apparently exactly. 10 years. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, he's a tough son of a bitch, so it is what it is. Uh, but, yeah, no, I, I'm I'm excited, you know, for this turn. So I, I'm looking forward to see what direction they head in. Again, we had another backstage moment. Uh, this time the Acclaimed were, you know, talking about where they're going to be going next now that they've lost the tag titles, um, which Matt Menard and Angelo Parker brought up that they are interested in working with them and saying that they're perfect matches for the JAS, uh, saying that they were all sports entertainers at heart. Which in response saw the Acclaimed laugh and walk away. Yes. So I believe this set up a match uh, that's going to take place on Rampage. And last but not least, we had our main event for the TNT title. It was a Falls Count Anywhere between Powerhouse Hobbs and Wardlow that started off in the back with Wardlow and Powerhouse Hobbs fighting on top of a car. Yeah, I thought that was a good change of pace. Um, It did feel a little WWE to me for some reason. Um, I did like the spot, though, with um, Hobbs going through the fucking windshield. That was Uh badass as all hell. All in all, it was just a, a good you know, brawl between two big hosses. Um, we did eventually see both of them fight their way to the ring. Um, Wardlow showed why he's one of the most like versatile big men of all time, uh, and started pulling out his like barrage of Jeff Hardy inspired moves. Uh, We even saw him, (laughs) you know, hit a, a swanton bomb on the outside of the ring, putting Hobbs through a table. Um, you know, everything was all fine and good until really the last two minutes of this match. Um, they fought up the ramp. Uh, they got to the announcer's table. And then all of a sudden, QT Marshall came out and uh, blindsided Wardlow. Uh, then we saw Hobbs and uh, Marshall put Wardlow through a giant crash pad. <laughs> <laughs> Essentially, yes. That wasn't very well hidden. Um, which is so weird to me that like you would have them do these major spots that were ultra dangerous and ultra violent. Yeah. And then you have this juxtaposition of them, you know, finishing the match through a fucking crash pad. Like we saw Hobbs get put through a windshield of a car and that might've been fucking like sugar glass or whatever, 
but it was a great visual. Yes. And then you have fucking Wardlow risk his life doing a swanton bomb on the outside of the fucking ring. But then you choose to play it safe at the end and, you know, end the match in a way that is so obviously like nerfed. And I'm not, I'm not sure why. Like there has to be some kind of like in between. Like, <laughs> like, I mean, just do the bit where you have multiple tables out there for no reason and have the crash pad yeah. hidden underneath. Like, Wardlow just put his body on the line going through a table on the outside of the ring. Like, he could handle that kind of situation. I just don't get it. It was weird, especially since it was a 10 count as well for the victory when yes. Hobbs could have easily gotten a pin off that, of him. That made it feel flat. Yeah. Um, you know, I would have much rather see, like, you know, Hobbs pick up Wardlow's carcass and then, like, hit another move and, you know, get a pin. Um, the whole QT Marshall thing didn't work for me because, I don't know, for for me personally, QT has, like, turned the channel heat where I, I just don't want to see him on my screen. And I know he's playing to heel and he's just doing his job, but he's so vanilla and bland that I just, I don't know, I find him boring and I don't want to see him wrestling, especially when there's so many others on the roster who could do a better job in the role that he's filling. I know he like holds a uh, important position behind the scenes, but there's no reason why he needs to be out there even as a manager, you know, and I'm guessing that's what this is. I'm guessing this is some kind of like new faction. Cause they had the whole, he had the QTV logo on his shirt, which Tony Schiavone made the point to point out and emphasize. Like, I don't know why, Tony would be so worried about what kind of fucking polo, you know, QT's wearing when they're like, you know, while they're murdering Wardlow, but it is what it is. Um, I like, I mean, a lot of people have been just phony outraged on, you know, Twitter right now over this. I don't think it's that big of a deal. Um, I think the most important takeaway is that Hobbs has the title and it's about fucking time. So I'm glad that, you know, Hobbs is finally getting a push. Would I rather have him like paired with someone like Stokely or even fucking uh, Smart Mark? Yes. Like I don't, I, you have plenty of other managers, you know, on the roster who could even, fill this role. Even Prince fucking Nana or whatever his yes. name was. Or Vicky Guerrero. Yes. <laughs> who I actually think is leaving the company. Um, But regardless, there are so many other managers who could do a better job than QT. So it's just disappointing at the the end of the day, but I'm sure Hobbs will rise above it and be just fine. Um, I feel bad for Wardlow. Um, I don't know what this means for, you know, where he's headed as a character. Um, his match on the pay-per-view against Joe is probably my like least favorite. And I think part of it just was that like it had no heat from the audience and that was more due to like placement on the card. But you could tell that Wardlow's just lost a lot of steam. And mm -hmm. I think it's all due to shitty booking and like them doing this like stop and start thing with him. And I don't know if that's all due to injury or, you know, if like Tony should take all of the blame uh, because, you know, sometimes AEW 
they just don't disclose injuries. And I think it's to their own detriment because like there's been plenty of wrestlers in the past who've disappeared for like long periods of times. And we're kind of scratching our head like, Hey, what the fuck happened to them? And then they come back and they're like, they just kind of make a mention. Oh yeah. They've been out, you know, nursing a knee or they've been out doing that. It's like, okay, well shit. (laughs) Why take the heat on as a company? It, you know, it, you know, when you could just be upfront and tell us exactly where these wrestlers are. Exactly. Um, but yeah, you know, cause we're just going to assume inept booking at this point. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I'm happy for Hobbs, but at the same time, I'm worried for Wardlow. Um, one of my biggest gripes of the entire revolution pay-per-view, um, you know, really stemmed from the fact that I was actually surprised cause I haven't seen, anyone win with someone else's finisher in a long time um i thought that was like oh wow wardlow you know won with the coquina clutch i i haven't seen someone actually once usually when an opponent does the other person's finisher it's like the death sentence for them like oh they're gonna get you know they're gonna lose the match now because they tried to do this so that was cool but then the main event yeah you know fucking mjf does the fucking um label lock to win so I was like, mm-hmm. why are we not, why can't one of you guys just not do the the, the same finish? Yeah. Why are we and, not communicating? And it's like, I, I think that finish with Wardlow was flat because of the way it ended. Mm-hmm. Like people want to see Wardlow powerbomb the shit out of someone. Oh, absolutely. They don't want to see him choke someone out. Um, so it really didn't help that match at all. And I understand what the story they were trying to tell there was, but at the same time, you would hope that producers would be communicating and making sure that you wouldn't have that kind of redundancy, um, on the card, because it does kind of water down the impact when you do have something like that happen. And that's not the first time we've seen this, right? Like we've seen storylines like literally mirror each other, you know, taking place at the same time. And we just had like two gauntlets happen yeah you know in the build to this pay-per-view so like tony has to do a better job of really having like checks and balances in place to make sure shit like this doesn't happen because it does really affect like i don't know long-term storytelling but you know did it ruin the iron man match for me no not at all you know, no, honestly, no. I didn't think about that until you just brought it up. So. <laughs> <laughs> I was just surprised to see it. That was all. I was just surprised that both matches would have that finish on such a big match that they had that during that Iron Man. Yeah. And you, you would think that you would try to protect the main event more. and Like, mm-hmm. hey, this is the finish we're doing. Make sure that the rest of the card doesn't have anything similar in it. The one highlight of the pay-per-view for me was the amount of like homegrown talent that was put over on the card. Because if you think about it, like, you know, Wardlow won, Jungle Boy won, um, MJF won, uh, Hangman won. Like it was all like AEW originals, you know, winning. So I do feel like that does a lot for your roster and just the perception of, you know, the younger talent that you have. Like they are like making strides and, you know, really coming up through the ranks now. No, good catch. I didn't realize it was mostly just homegrown people that won. Yeah, because even like Jamie Hayter won. Yeah, exactly. It's across the board. I mean, hell, even the fucking guns. <laughs> yes, good point. Even though they should, whatever. Yes, I hate saying it, but yeah. 
because that <laughs> would have worked was... also with the acclaim. So. <laughs> mm-hmm. At least it wasn't Jeff Jarrett and Jay Lethal. Yes, right? like... yes. But once again, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, we're not sitting here next week this time and just mourning the fact that Jeff Jarrett has won the, <laughs> the newly christened international title. It's going to be a monumental occasion. All right. But regardless, make sure to join us next week as we talk the latest episode of AEW Dynamite. Well, that does it for this week. As a friendly reminder, make sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And while you're there, leave a five star review. It really helps new listeners to find the podcast and for us to continue to grow. Also, if you like the stories from this week's episode and want to keep up to date with the show, follow us on social media at Amazing. Nerd Show or stop by the AmazingNerdShow.com. And hey, to support the show further and get additional weekly content, you can subscribe to us now on Patreon. Just follow the link in the show notes. Also, if you want to rep some Nerd Show swag, you can head over to TeePublic.com to find t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, and more. And if you post what you bought and tag us on social media, we'll send you some additional Nerd Show swag as long as you live in the United States. All right, make sure to join us next week as we talk all the latest news and rumors in nerd culture and whatever's going on in the world of wrestling. My name's Christian. And my name's David. And that was The Amazing Nerd Show.